0: All right. Yeah. Come on. Make sure that yeah. thing's recording. Woo. Come on. Yeah. Look at Woo. <laughs> Elder Charlie is in the house. You guys excited about getting in the Word tonight? Yeah. I will tell you beforehand tonight we are going to do one chapter. <laughs> So your attention span ought to be spared tonight. We're going to do one chapter, one chapter alone. It's going to be exciting. I will admit beforehand. Has anybody read through the chapters before we got together tonight? Did anybody particularly find anything interesting and revelatory in chapter 26? Would anybody like to get up and share on chapter 26? I will admit to you beforehand that I didn't see much in chapter 26 until I dug into it with my brothers over the phone and I started to see that God had some very good things for us tonight. You know, sometimes if you just skip over the word, you don't get as much. But if you take the time to really ask the Lord to reveal something to you, He does, and it's very, very good. Before we start, uh, can we have Elder Charlie pray for us? Yes.
1: Father God,
2: we come before you, Lord God. We come to glorify you this night, Lord God. And we come to read and study your word, Father God. We just pray that you open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have to give us, Lord God. As we can go forth and glorify you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: All right, well, good evening. It is good to be here with you tonight and get in the word together. Tonight we'll be covering chapter 26, and I promise... There are some amazing things in store for you as we dig in. Before we start, we want to take the time, want to take the time to review with you last week briefly. And then I'm going to foreshadow, foreshadow a couple of things that we're going to get into in the next coming weeks. So last week we covered chapters 23 through 25, and we titled that Heavenly Stratagem. Did you guys get some good things out of that? Yes. In those chapters, we learned that the first tangible place that David started on was the order of the divisions that is the first tangible place that David started on David could not build the temple but what he could do is he could arrange the people that would build the temple we see the same thing in the son of David Jesus he is not actively building the temple but he has arranged the divisions that will come on that's good isn't it we learned that David's revelation wasn't just an obscure vision during an esoteric prayer session. It wasn't just something that popped into his mind. He got his revelation through what? Discipleship. 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 You guys are catching on. There were many different functions in those divisions that we learned about. Remember we learned about the Merarites, the Gershonites, the Kohathites. Just like today, there are many different functions amongst God's divisions. And each of those functions have to work together as one unit. We saw last week that David had a five-fold ministry. Did you see that? He had 24,000 supervisors, 24,000 Levites. He had 24 heads of priests, 24 prophets, and there were 24,000 units in each military division. Come on. It doesn't get better than that, does it? We saw that the prophets worked in unison with the military commanders. We learned that that is what is called military intelligence. Just like the IDF works with the Mossad and the Mossad gathers intel so the IDF can carry out their mission. It is the same thing with corporate prophecy. Corporate prophecy is seeing into the heavens the plan that the military leaders have already laid out. And they're gaining insight from the Lord on how to carry out that plan. Man, we saw that in action last Sunday. Some of the prophecies that we heard were directly related to the word that we heard that day. We saw that all of the divisions structured by David were in groups of 24s. Just like God's throne has divisions of 24, David was building a throne for his son and a throne of God, and he was structuring 24s around that throne. What was in the heavens, David was building on the earth. And that brings us to where we are tonight. Chapter 26 is going to teach us how we develop into our divisions. So last week we learned about the divisions. We learned about the functions. Tonight, we're going to learn how we develop into those functions. You guys want to do that? Now I'm going to give you some hints at where we're going in the next few weeks. In the next few weeks, we're going to cover chapters 27 through 29. We're going to get to the end of 1 Chronicles, and we're going to go right into 2 Chronicles, and it's going to blow your mind. We're going to get into the building of the temple. We're going to get to where Solomon is on the scene. We will be studying the final acts of David before Solomon takes the throne. I mean, we've been studying a year and a half on the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Chronicles. And now David is finally going to end his reign and his son is going to take his place. We're also going to see preparatory phases before the building of the temple. And most of what will be covered in the next coming weeks, chapters 27 through 29, has much significance on the timing and the history of books such as Ezra and Nehemiah. Hey, guess what? Who wrote the book of Chronicles? Ezra Ezra did. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the building of the second temple. So how much importance do you think Chronicles has on Ezra who is building the second temple? When When he's writing about David and his divisions, when he's writing about the priests and the Levites on watch 24 hours a day, there are 12... Men, watching 24 hours a day, how much importance do you think that bears on Ezra, who is currently building another temple? That ought to clue you into the historical context of your life. Here we are engaged in building a temple for the Lord, and we are seeing Ezra look at what happened in the past and what he is doing in his day. That's going to be exciting, isn't it? You will find many similarities in the chapter tonight and the coming chapters to Ezra's historical context because he was engaged and building a temple just as Israel was here. So with that in mind, you guys want to get in the text? Yes. If we would have Lintonius Justice the Max, our faithful reader of the scroll, if you would read <laughs> chapter 26, and we're gonna dive right in.
2: <laughs> the divisions of the gatekeepers from the Korahites, Mesdamaia, son of Korah, one of the sons of Asa. Meshchimiah had sons. Zechariah the firstborn. Jediel the secondborn. Zebediah the third. Come on. Japneel Jop- Jop- the fourth. Ooh. Elam the fifth. Jehohanan the sixth. Elihonai <coughs> the seventh.
0: Yeah. yeah. Baby also
2: had sons. Yeah. Shemaiah the firstborn. Jehoshaphat the seventh. <laughs> Joah the third. Sikar the fourth. Nethanel the fifth. Amiel the sixth. Issachar the seventh. Pilithi, Abel, for God had blessed obed His son, Shemaiah, also had sons who were leaders in their father's family because they were very capable men. The sons of Shemaiah, Ahlien, Raphael, Obed, Elzabeth, his relatives Elihu and Semchiah were also able men. All these were descendants of obed Edom. They and their sons and their relatives were capable men with the strength to do the work. Descendants of obed edom mm-hmm. 62 in all. Yeah. Meshlemiah had sons and relatives who were able men, 18 in all. Hosea the Marorite, had sons. Shimri the first, although he was not the firstborn, his father had appointed him the first. Hikkiah, the second. Tabaliah, the, the, the third. Zechariah, the fourth. The sons and relatives of Hosea were 13 in all. These divisions of the gatekeepers, through their chief men, had duties for ministering in the temple of the Lord, just as their relatives had. Lots were cast for each gate, according to their families, young and old alike. The lot for the east gate fell to Shalamiah. Then lots were cast for his son Zechariah, a wise counselor. And the lot for the north gate fell to him. The lot for the south gate fell to Obedidon. And the lot for the storehouse fell to his sons. The lots for the west gate and the Shadiket gate on the upper road fell to Shupim and Hosa. Guard was alongside of guard. There were six Levite a day on the east, four a day on the north, four a day on the south, and two at a time at the storehouse. As for the court to the west, there were four at the road and two at the court itself. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers who were descendants of Korah and Merari. Their fellow Levites were in charge of the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for the dedicated things. The descendants of Ladan, who who were Gershonites through Ladan, who were heads of families belonging to Ladan, the Gershonites were Jehili, the sons of Jehili, Zetham, and his brother Joel. These were in charge of the treasuries of the temple of the Lord. From the Amramites, the Israelites, and the Hebronites, and the Uzielites, Shubael, the descendant of Gershon, son of Moses, was the officer in charge of the treasuries. His relatives through Eliezer, Rehobiah, his son, Jeshiah, his son, Jorah, his son, Zikri his son, and Shalemoth, Shalemith, his son. shelemith and his relatives were in charge of all the treasuries for the things dedicated by King David, by the heads of families who were the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and by the other army commanders. Some of the plunder had some of the plunder taken in the battle they dedicated for the repair of the temple of the Lord. And everything dedicated by Samuel the Seer, and by Saul son of Kish, Abner son of Ner, and Joab son of Zerariah, and all the other dedicated things were in the care of Shelimon, and his relatives. From the Israelites, Cananiah and his sons were assigned duties away from the temple as officials and judges over Israel. From the Hebronites, Asherbiah and his relatives, 1,700 able men were responsible in Israel west of the Jordan for all the work of the Lord and for the king's service. As for the Hebronites, Jeriah was their chief according to the genealogical records of their families. In the 40th year of David's reign, a search was made in the records and capable men among the Hebronites were found at Jazer and Gilead. Jeriah had 2,700 relatives who were able men and heads of families, and King David put them in charge of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and for the affairs of the king.
0: Everybody give a round of applause to our reader (laughs) of the story. Now, I know like many of you, I showed up this morning to start studying. I was excited about some of the chapters that are coming after this. I read chapter 26 and I said, I thought to myself, my God, this is like reading an Israeli phone book. (laughs) I mean, after covering a long list of names last week, we're getting into more of these. But I promise you, there's something good here for you. So you guys ready to dig in? Yeah. Linton, read verse one.
2: Division of the gatekeepers from the Korah, Korahites, Meshachimiah, son of Korah, one of the sons of Asaph.
0: Now it's all too easy to skip over these men. Last week we're learning about how God is ordering everything in its divisions, how God is setting everything. Now we, we read about the fivefold ministry that David instituted, we read about how these were patterned in pairs of uh, 24s. As we read tonight, you don't find any more 24s. So you ask yourself, what's the importance of God l- listing out men who are just gatekeepers? I mean, out of all out of all things that is important to David to put into divisions, gatekeepers. Why gatekeepers? I mean, how, how many of you heard people say things like, you know, it doesn't really matter to me much what I do in the kingdom as long as I could just be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard somebody say things like that? Yeah. It's important to David to list these things because gatekeepers are not just millennial tasks. A gatekeeper is not just a person who stands there and just watches a gate. A gatekeeper are someone who watched the gate and controlled who came in and who came out. And what they're, what they're gatekeepers to is pretty important. These are gatekeepers to the temple of God. These men that we're about to list were selected to control Who comes in and out of the temple? And what was in the temple? You have all of the sacred artifacts. You have an ark, you have a menorah, you have a table of incense. These men were selected to control and watch over who comes in and who comes out. They controlled, quite literally, who came into the presence of God and who went out from it. Now that's pretty important, is it? If you have a temple on the earth, and that represents the presence of God to all humanity, then how important is it to who comes in and who goes out? It's pretty important. This is a very high calling. And like so many other things that we have been studying lately, there are very significant details here that pertain to the heavenly realms. You guys want to see gatekeepers in the heavenly realms? So I'm going to hand out a few scriptures, and we're going to start to tie some things together for you. So let's have Brandon. You're going to take Genesis 3, 24. JJ, you're going to read Ezekiel 28, verse 14 through 15. Rob, you take Ezekiel 10, 3 through 4. Nolan, Exodus 25, 20 through 22. Uh, Steve Thomas, you're going to take Exodus 26, 31 through 33. Marlon, you get Psalm 99, 1 through 2. And uh, we'll go on from there. What we're going to be studying is we're going to see that there are gatekeepers on the physical temple in the earth. There are gatekeepers who control who comes into the presence of God and who goes out. Would you be interested to know that there are gatekeepers in the heavens? That there are men, not men, there are beings that control who can come near to a certain thing and who cannot come near to that? Let's read Genesis three twenty four.
3: After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life.
0: Now, many of you, when you read this, you think that there was placed some kind of suspended flashing sword to guard people from getting in to the Tree of Life. That is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says that it was placed there to guard the way back to the Tree of Life. Yeah. God always intended men to come back to the tree of life, but he put a guard there because men who were originally there before failed and couldn't handle it. So he put a guard there to determine who can come in and who can come out. After the fall of men, God placed beings called cherubim on the east side to guard the way back. Now, when you read about these cherubim, when we're learning about heavenly stratagems and satanic stratagems and things like that, You have been learning a lot about different beings in the heavenly realms, haven't you? You've been learning about Rephaim, how Rephaim are fallen spirits of Nephilim or Anakim, and they, they are the demons of today. You've been learning about angels and Archon and many different things. You've been learning about Satan, who's been the being behind the curtain controlling all the things around it. Here we want to introduce another player to the story, and these are cherubim. Now, many of you are probably going to ask, what is a cherubim? To be honest with you, I don't have the answer. Maybe one of these pastors do have an answer. I, some of you are like, well, what is a cherubim? Is it an angel? Is it something else? I don't know if it's an angel. What I do know, though, that a cherubim has a very specific function, and we're going to see that cherubim are always called cherubim because of their function. And can you guess what that function is? Guarding. Gatekeeping. See, when you read about cherubim, you get the impression that you do not want to mess with these things because they were always placed to guard things. These cherubim are not stated as being angels, but they do have a specific function. Who's got e- Ezekiel 28:14 through 15? You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you.
1: You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till wickedness was found in you.
0: Now to be clear, this passage is about the king of Tyre. Many people have looked at this passage and said this is about Lucifer. This is about the devil. The devil used to be a cherub. Not one of those kind of little cherries that you get at the grocery store. <laughs> a cherubim. And that he once fell and now he's Satan. That's not what this is saying at all. This is about the king of Tyre. But look what it calls the king of Tyre. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. He's saying... You are not anointed a guardian cherub. You are anointed as a guardian cherub. You are anointed to have a function that was guarding something like a cherub. You guys tracking? Yeah. Here we see clearly that the function of a cherub is to guard things. Who's got Ezekiel 10, 3 through
1: 4? Now the cherubim was standing on the south
0: side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. Now, here Ezekiel's having a vision of a temple. Ezekiel's having a vision of a temple, and he's seeing that at the temple, around every gate, there's posted cherubim. And they are guarding who comes in and who goes out. In this example, we see a man coming in. Can you guess who that man is? Well, it doesn't quite say it in Ezekiel, but I think you can study and find out yourself. Ezekiel's vision has a cherubim stationed at the gates determining who goes in. Who's got Exodus 25, 20 through 22? And you're going to like this.
1: The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the
3: Israelites.
0: Now this is kind of neat. On God's Ark, which by the way is called the Mercy Seat, or the Ark of the Testimony, and inside the Ark were placed some very significant objects. On top of that Mercy Seat there was placed two cherubim, and it says in the English they were put there to overshadow the cover with him. Would you be interested to know that that Hebrew word for overshadow is a little bit different than overshadow? We've got a slide for you to show you that. That man has been anointed as a guardian cherub. That's all good. So that Hebrew word for overshadow is the Hebrew five five two six, and I'm going to try my best to say this without uh, screwing it up. But it's a uh, sakak. He- Hebrew is an interesting language. Listen to this: the Strong's uh, gives the definition that it is a primitive root. Properly to entwine as a screen, by implication to fence in, cover over, and figuratively it means to protect something. In the King James, the word that's used here is used as to defend something in the Hebrew. It's used as in defense of something, to hedge in, or to shut up something. So you see here that these cherubim are not placed just to cover. To overshadow the ark. What are they doing? They're placed there to defend the ark. Now that's kind of interesting because all they are are just copies. But they're copies of what? A pattern of something in the heavens. Here is the ark which represents the presence of God. And it represents the mercy seat. And there are cherubim there to protect it. The word overshadow means to defend. These statues of gold were made as a pattern of what was in the heavens. They guard the ark of God where the presence of God was. Let's bring that to Exodus 26, 31, and you're going to see this go even further. Exodus
1: 26, 31
0: through 33. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, with cherubim worked into it. Shut up. With what worked into it? Cherubim. Cherubim. On four bases. hang the curtain from the and place the Ark of the Testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. No. So not only not only are there cherubim placed on top of the ark or the mercy seat, there are cherubim woven in to the curtain that separates the holy from the most holy. Wow. I mean, if you if you grew up in this culture, learning about cherubim as being guardians. And you were tempted to run into the Holy of Holies. And all of a sudden you see a curtain with cherubim on it. That would be a, a huge warning sign that would tell you don't do it. You might get yourself into trouble. Images of these beings were woven into the curtain as a warning against anybody who would come in who was not authorized. That ought to tell you something about the presence of God here tonight. The presence of God is not for everybody like you say it is. The presence of God are for those who have made themselves holy, who repented their actions, and they want the God of Israel more than anything else. Yeah. The presence of God is not just something you take to the streets and offer to everybody as though it was water and cheap. The presence of God is something to be revered and guarded. Amen. Psalm 99, verse 1.
1: The Lord Let the nation tremble. He sees and throne between the shermen. Let the earth shake. The Lord He's over all the nations.
0: Here we see that the psalmist sees on earth a copy of what is in the heavens. The Lord here is presented as having guardian cherubim around his throne to determine what has access to him. This is talking about the Lord in the heavens, and he is enthroned between cherubim and the heavens. Now these beings differ from other heavenly beings in that their role is to guard The presence of God. David is continuing to build on the earth what he sees in the heavens by setting gatekeepers. He has set his fivefold ministry, his divisions of 24, and now he is doing the next thing that he's seeing in the heavens and setting guardians around the temple of the earth. Now, we've already said earlier that many have blasphemed this idea by saying, if only I could be a doorkeeper in the house of God. I mean, that's quite ridiculous. The people who say that have no idea what they're talking about. A gatekeeper is the most serious position. A gatekeeper is the most serious position in God's kingdom because they determine who is fit and unfit for the presence of God. Now you say, wait a second, that's not fair. Everybody should be fit for the presence of God, right? Yeah, except when men go in to try to touch the presence of God unauthorized, they end up getting killed. See, God has a serious problem with taking his presence lightly, and we should too. To be a gatekeeper means that you are watching, seeing who is coming in and determining whether or not they should be there or not. It means looking at people and saying, hey, you, you probably should be considering the kind of filth that you're living in before you try to have access to God's presence. I've heard preachers say this, you know, the good news is that God is here. The bad news is that God is here. It just really determines on which side of the line you're standing. You know, being in the presence of God is not always a good thing. It just determines that by how you're living. I want to take you, I want to read to you Ephesians two seventeen through eighteen. It says he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one. Spirit, come on now, learning about everything we just learned about, about gatekeepers and guardians. How good is it to hear that you have access to the father? You have access, unlimited access to the father here tonight. Where there was once a guardian with a flashing sword that was going to cut you down if you tried. Now he has stepped out of the way because of what the son of God has done for you. Man, that's good news, isn't it? We are allowed to enter into his holy and awesome presence because he has made the way. We don't have to fear being struck down because he's made the way. Not only do we have access to something so precious and awesome, we get to give others access because the way has been made available to us. We now are the gatekeepers to God's presence. This is the highest calling you can have in the universe. You have the ability tonight to give access To the presence of God. To anyone you meet. You just have to look at them and determine whether or not they're ready for it. You have to be willing to look at the word. Look at their lives. And give them what they need. That is the highest calling you can have. Second Timothy 1.14 says. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Now why do you need to guard it? Because so many different things are trying to take it from you. Why do you not share your pearls before swine? Because they might throw it on the ground and trample it in the street. I'm not talking about not evangelizing. I'm talking about being wise who we are evangelizing to. We must guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Hey, not everybody is going to receive the good deposit that was entrusted to you. But you have to be like a good gatekeeper and determine who is going to receive the revelation God has given you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Look, tonight we must be on guard because of what we have received and what we have access to is very precious. So many times we want to we go out on the streets and we want to just invite people to LCM. And honestly, that's not always a good idea. This What we have here and what we have access to in this church is very precious. And I'll be honest with you, not everybody's ready for it. Not everybody out there is ready to have what we have in here. We shouldn't have to have a come and see mentality when we go out there. We shouldn't have to go up to people and say, hey, man, you should love Jesus. And then they respond in an ungodly way and you say, well, hey, come to my church and see what I'm talking about. We should be able to be gatekeepers out there where they are at. This is not for everyone. We have access to precious things from the Lord. We have to treat it like precious. We must make righteous judgments. We must take this as seriously as it is taken in the heavens. Tonight, you have to get that gatekeepers is not a a menial task. Being a gatekeeper is one of the most serious things that you can do. So when you hear somebody say, you know, I don't really care if I make it in the kingdom. I don't really care if I have a whole lot as long as I'm a doorkeeper in the house of God. You ought to tell them what that really means because what they're asking for themselves is a whole lot more than they're probably willing to carry. But I know you guys are willing to carry that. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. You guys want to move on? Yes. Yeah. Now, Linton, we've got to read verse 2 through verse 6. Come
2: on. has <laughs> sons. Zechariah, the firstborn. Zedihel, the second. Zebediah, the third. Joshua. Elam the fifth, Jehonai the sixth, Elihonai the seventh. Obed-Edom also had sons. Shemaiah the first one, the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Ethanel the, the fifth, Abiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, and Peleothai the eighth. For God had blessed obed His son Shemaiah also had sons who were leader in their, in their father's family. Because they were
0: very capable men. Man, everybody say very capable. Very capable. You know, in verse 6, you can see everything that LCM teaches about discipleship right here. These men were grandsons of Obed-Edom. You guys remember that guy? They were grandsons of (laughs) Obed-Edom, and yet they were considered equal to their fathers and their grandfathers at the same time. So at the same time that their fathers and grandfathers were alive, their sons were considered equal. And what made these sons equal to their fathers? They were very capable. How did they become very capable? Well, they performed their functions as well as their fathers performed theirs. The role of fathers and disciples is to raise up men who are equal to who they are Now, not later, now. You see, we all want to raise up men who are better than ourselves. But do you want to do that now? Do you want to raise up your sons who are better than you right now? What's essentially is happening here is men are looking at Obed-Edom and they're saying that your sons are just as good as you right now. It's like men looking at me and saying, yeah, Joshua is just as good as you are. I mean, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Considering he's this tall, but maybe in 12 years, he might be a very capable young man and he will be better than me while he's 18 or so. The role of fathers and disciples is to raise up men who are equal to who they are now, not later. We don't raise up men who are better than us when we die. We don't raise up men who are better than us, women who are better than us when we leave the scene. When we decide to get up off of the throne and let them have it, we raise up men who are better than us while we are still here. Discipleship should make us peers with the men and women that we raise up. Otherwise, we're doing it for our own glory. The entire goal of LCM discipleship is to raise up men who are peers. When I came into LCM, I had not a clue what was going on in my walk, not a clue where I was going. Over the years, fathers have invested, and now I get the, the tremendous joy of walking side by side with these men. And I've seen some of these men raise up some other of these men in the church, and you guys are walking side by side, and now we're all viewed as equals. That is the goal of discipleship, is to raise up peers, not servants. John 15, verse 15 through 16, says, "I no longer call you." servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I have made known to you, man. Jesus was the best discipler, wasn't he? Jesus was the most gifted teacher, the best pastor, the most anointed prophet. And at the very end of his life, he looked at his disciples and he said, you know, I do not call you servants. I call you my friends. Amen. That is what discipleship does is it takes someone who was not your friend in the gospel and it makes you on the same level plane. It makes you friends through the gospel. He raised up men who would be more than servants. He raised up friends. And if that wasn't enough, he would entrust the kingdom to them. Wow. I mean, who if you were Jesus, which is ridiculous to think, if you were Jesus, how many of you would entrust the entire kingdom to 12 scared men? Jesus was the ultimate discipler. What he did is he took these men and he raised them up to the same level as himself. And he made them who they were. This reminds me of Hebrews 2, 10 through 12. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitted, fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation. Perfect through suffering. Who is the author of salvation? Jesus, both the one who makes men holy, who's that Jesus Jesus. and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Brothers. Jesus is the author of our salvation. He is the one who makes men holy. We are the ones made holy through him. Now think about that for a second. Just in the same way. Your disciples are the one that make you holy. Yeah. Wow. Without your fathers and disciples, without our spiritual mothers in the house, I mean, where would any of us be? Dead. I don't think any of us would be walking in holiness without them. Yeah, not at all. They are the ones who are making us walk in holiness by teaching us and showing us the way. But even though they are the ones making us holy, they're not ashamed to call us brothers. Amen. Man, that is a special level of discipleship there. I want to tell you, when you have somebody that's under you, you're tempted to keep them there under you for a little bit. You're tempted to kind of keep them because, you know what? I'm the one who invested in this person. I'm the one who brought them up to where they're at. They really wouldn't be anywhere without me until they start surpassing me. And that's the beauty of discipleship right there. Is that God will not allow it to be a pride-filled relationship. Instead, he makes it into The kind of relationship that humbles you as you raise up the one who surpasses you. We are of the same family. And Jesus, even Jesus, calls us brothers. In the same way, we have many tiers of equal discipleship in this house. There are fathers who are raising up sons, natural and spiritual, who will become brothers. There are brothers who are raising up younger brothers who will become equals. There are different tiers of discipleship in this room. And if you stay here long enough, you can see that there are different ways of discipleship. The pastors here have made disciples who are making disciples who the disciples they are making are becoming equal to the original disciples. Yeah. When the original disciples don't have much of a hand in it anymore. It is actually the disciples making disciples. That is what we're seeing here. Grandsons who are considered equals to their grandfathers. Yeah. There are brothers who are raising up younger brothers who will be equals. This should encourage us tonight. Come on, think of the examples we have in this room. We have Elder Charlie, a father in the faith. We have Elder Baj, a father in the faith. We have Elder John, a father in the faith, who are discipling our pastors. They're discipling us too. They're discipling the pastors. The pastors are discipling men like the turkey team, like Bim, Like Abambola, like Cody going to go to Mexico, like many of you who are going to achieve things for the Lord. And in turn, you are discipling the young disciples who are coming through the doors. It doesn't matter. Now think about that. That puts everybody on an equal plane, doesn't it? It doesn't matter who you're discipled by. The fact is we are all growing at an equal pace of rate. And we are all being made equal through this discipleship. That ought to let you know it doesn't matter the timing that you were brought into this house. It yeah. doesn't matter if you came in 10 years ago or if you came in one year ago. What, it doesn't matter what order you were born in or what order you were born again in or how long you've been here. Your status is determined by how you perform in your function and how you grow. Yeah. These men were made equal because they were what? Very capable. They weren't just men who sat in their grandfather's house and sat there and listened to everything and were able to regurgitate it. They became very capable, and that's how they were considered equal. Your status is not determined by anything else than how you perform your function. So it's not who spends the most time with Matthew. It's not who spends the most time with Wade or who doesn't get a chance because they work such a busy schedule. What matters is how well you perform in your function. We see men in this room who are being discipled so well, and we think it's because they're gifted with all kinds of things that we are not benefited with, like we're the victim. The truth is, is that they're walking in their function and performing very well. And that's how they're growing. Tonight, we're going to focus on being very capable tonight. Tonight, we're going to let go of all the excuses that keep us from discipleship. Tonight, we're going to learn. That what makes us grow is how we perform in our function, not anything else. All right? You guys ready? Yeah. Are you guys with me tonight? Yeah. I know I'm preaching to myself tonight because to I had none of this before I showed up. Come on. Come on. <laughs> All right, let's get into verse 7. Read through
2: Shemaiah, uh, 8. The sons of Shemaiah, Of, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad. his relatives, Elihu, and were also able men. All these were descendants of Obed Edom. They and their sons and their relatives were capable men with the strength to do the work. Descendants of Obed Edom. 62 in all.
0: Now I'm gonna to get to the most obvious and then I'm gonna to get to the least obvious, okay? There's a couple uh pieces of fruit hanging on this tree. Did you notice that this is Obed Edom? This is the same Obed-Edom that housed the ark. And how many descendants did he have? 62? You know, all in all, he seems to be a very obscure character in the word. I mean, after all, we don't know a thing about Obed-Edom until the ark just happens to go to his house. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he's blessed and now he has sons. That's pretty interesting. What we do know is that he found the presence of God in his house and he was blessed with sons. That ought to tell you something. You know how LCM is blessed? You want to know the the proof how we really know that we're blessed? Well, we've got the presence of God dwelling amongst us. And how do we know we have the presence of God dwelling amongst us? Because sons are being born in this house. See, without sons, how do you even know the presence of God is here? We know that the presence of God is here because sons are being born and given to us so that they can grow and become equals. That is how we know the presence of God is here. Amen. The moment you notice that there are no more sons being raised up, run as fast as you can. Because that means the presence of God has left. Wow. Now let's get into the uh, least obvious. Did you notice in verse 6 the men were called very capable? Yeah. What do we see here? Able. Able,
1: Able.
0: Able and capable. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What is the difference? I mean, we've got able, capable, and very capable. You know, you know what that just speaks to me? All men start in the kingdom able. We all start able to do the work. All of us, every person in this room, you are able to do the work of God. He makes us able. We are able to do many things that he calls us to. All of us. Everybody say, I'm able. I'm able. But we don't just stay at being able. We become capable. And we don't stay at capable. We become very capable. How do you become very capable? Well, you start at being able to do something. And then the more you do it, he makes you more capable at doing it. And before long, you end up very capable at what you're doing. That is where we're going. You know, some might be able in this room, but I don't want to just be able. I want to be very capable. You know, you might be able to pray. Someone else might be capable to teach others to pray. But someone very capable can thwart the devil's schemes through intercession. That's what very capable does. You might be sitting here tonight and you are able to make a convert, but someone who is capable can make a disciple. Someone very capable can advance the entire kingdom. You might be able to crucify your flesh, but someone who is capable can teach others to crucify their flesh. Someone very capable tears down geographical strongholds of the enemy. Come on, you start out small. But when you become very capable, you are dangerous to the kingdom of Amen. hell. Amen. You might be here tonight and you might be able to get a revelation. Boy, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Just to get a revelation. But someone who is capable can teach others to get their own revelation. Come on. Wow. Someone very capable can build up the body through their revelation. Come on, Man, we have got to move from just being able to being capable. And we can't stay at capable. We've got to move at very capable. Amen. Of course, we all start at being able, able, but we shouldn't be let down by that. That is where we start, not where we end up. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hand out a few scriptures on that topic. Who wants to read? Jackie, very able young man. You read 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and then stop at 3. Gabe, you get Colossians 1.10 through 13. We are moving from able to capable to very capable.
1: First Thessalonians 1.3 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, large, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows greater ever and gr- ever greater.
0: The NIV says your faith is growing more and more. Look, our walk is one that is constantly growing, never staying still. Each day adds to our capability as our deeds and our faith increase. Every day you ought to be seeing growth in your life. If you do not see growth, then you have to go, you have to go back somewhere and you have to say, Lord, what did I not learn that you want me to learn? Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to say that. Knowing that many of us do not feel like we're growing every day. Many of us look back and we're like, man, I I didn't feel like I grew yesterday. We get all discouraged about that. The truth is, is that you always start at being able. He has made you able. At the very least, you are able to do the work. And then as you go, you look back and you see how he's made you capable. And then you look back and you see how he's made you very capable. This walk that we have is not one that stays in the same place. It is always growing and moving forward. But most of the time, that is seen in hindsight. Most of the time, we can't judge ourselves by one day's success. Otherwise, we'd go crazy. But if you look back on your lives, can you see where God has made you from just being barely able to do something? And he is working you into being capable. He is working into your life and being very capable at what he's called you to do. That is the normal progress of a Christian. We start out barely able... And he moves us as we put our hands to the plow every day. He makes us more and more capable. Who's got Colossians 1, 10 through 13?
1: And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit and good work, every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And joyfully giving thanks to your Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light.
0: Come on, man. He has qualified you. Everybody say, he's qualified me. He's qualified me. There is nobody in this room that is not qualified. That's good he has made you able. Yeah. There's no one in this room that can say, I can't do it. Because at least he has made you able. Yeah. He has qualified you. Yeah. In every good work, you grow and you're strengthened. If we sit on our station, we won't become capable. If you just sit on the fact that you're able to do something, you will never grow into being capable. If we try to change our station, we won't grow into being capable. So if God has you in a specific place, and you're looking and saying, "Man, you know what? I want to be like I want to be like Bim. He's called to be a pastor. You know, I'm not down with all this teaching stuff. It's kind of hard. I want to be like Bim." Well, guess what? I won't become very capable. And what God has called me to do. If you stick to the station that God has called you in, you will grow from being able to capable to very capable. That's a good word. The fact is, is that we get discouraged because God has put us somewhere and we see that we are only able. And we <laughs> get discouraged, not realizing that he is making you into being more capable. Amen. We cannot try to change our station or we won't become capable. But if we, what he has given, if we... Take what he has given us and put it to work. He will give us more. This is just like the parable of the talents. Those that at least tried to do something with the talents, he takes from those that do not do anything, and he gives it to those who have because they've proven themselves faithful. I want to prove myself faithful. faithful. Do you? Yes. Man, I see a bunch of warriors in this house that God is making very capable. You know, some of the single guys a year or two ago, I wasn't very sure. I'd see Jackie every day ripping apart his Jeep. I was like, my God, what is he doing to that thing? And the more and more I see him grow, he's becoming more and more capable at what God has called him to do. Amen. That is our church. That is LCM. Amen. Let's move forward into verse 9 and 10, and we're going to get into some more themes on this.
2: First Leviah had sons and relatives who were able men, 18 and all. Both of them, the Marorite,
0: Man, he was not the firstborn, but his father appointed him the first. You know, the truth is we don't know the firstborn's name. We don't know who this firstborn's son is. Probably because he didn't progress through able, capable, very capable. He didn't progress. He was born into a station that he did not live up to. He was born into being the firstborn, but he didn't live up to that calling. Looks like God had a man who was born to a lesser station to replace him. Man, that's that's terrifying, isn't it? You know, just by being here at LCM, you are brought to a higher station. Just the fact that you're here means you are at a higher station. You must progress through able, capable and very capable to achieve the station for which you were born. If you do not do that, you could be replaced. I want you to let that sink in for a second. First Samuel 15, 27 through 29. Who wants to read that? I will. Bim, you read it, brother. Acts 1, 23 through 26. Nolan, you get that. First Corinthians 21, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. Pat, you get that, bro? Uh, Steve Thomas, you get Romans 11, 13 through 14. Hayes, you get Romans eleven seventeen through 18.
2: That was 1 Samuel 15, 27 through 29. Yep. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of
1: the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors
3: to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does
0: not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Man, he said said to Saul, the Lord has taken the kingdom from you and given it to one better than you. Now why was David better than Saul? Because he would move from able to capable to very capable and following the instructions of the Lord in the station God had called him to. But because Saul did not do that, God was raising up his replacement while Saul was still alive. You ought to let that warn you tonight. That if you do not progress from able to capable to very capable, God will raise someone else up in your stead. You know, I'm kind of tremble. I tremble at this thought, but I somewhat believe that God raised me up as a replacement for someone who didn't do what they were called to do. It is very possible for God to replace you. That I, and notice, everyone in this room has a specific function and state, uh, station. You are all called here to do a specific thing. Yeah. But if you do not walk in it, becoming very capable, God will find someone else who will. Okay. Look at Acts 1, 23 through 26.
1: So they proposed two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know, everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Ju- uh, Judas left to go where he belongs. <laughs> then they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles.
0: <laughs> All that's summed up of Judas life is said about him that he left to go where he belongs. Where did he go? He went to hell. He left his position to go where he belongs. The truth is, these men had incredible stations that were given to them, just like every person in this room. That's why we shouldn't put up with talk like, you know, man, I I just really don't feel like like I should be here, or man, I really don't feel like this discipleship thing is working out, or man, I really don't feel like this job is where God wants me to be. You have to be careful with that kind of talk because maybe God's using that to make you very capable. And if you won't allow God to do that in your life, He'll find someone else who will. These men had incredible stations that were given to them. Too bad they couldn't perform in it. Be careful not to get yourself. Now listen to this. Be careful not to get yourself into a station you are not ready for. These men got themselves into stations that they could not handle. Be careful not to get yourself into a station that you can't handle. So... Many of us want to leave and go out and do great things for the Lord, right? Some of us are asking, Lord, what is it it going to be? When am I going to be able to launch, break open the cage, and go out and fight the battles of the Lord? When am I going to be able to pastor like you called me to do? When am I going to be able to go evangelize like you called me to do? You might not realize that that could be a station that you are not ready to go on. Sometimes those stations that you are not ready to go on can kill you if you're not ready for it. If you're going, if you're asking God to bring you to a station that requires you to be very capable and you go, if you're only barely able, you might not make it. We have to pray and ask the Lord for his timing, not just for what we want. These men got themselves into situations that were bad. And it's because they were not ready for the station that they were in. Now, on the other hand, most of the time, God calls his servants from a lower station and moves them to outperform their station. Man, that is all over the word. And we're going to get into that. We are all waiting for the time that we are being made very capable. And you want to know something that's entirely true? God calls us each to outperform the level that we're at. Yeah. He calls us from a very low position and he's calling us higher. Yeah. He's calling us to outperform where we're at. Come
3: on, man.
0: That man was born, third born, fourth born. I don't know, but he outperformed where he was at and he was elevated to the firstborn status. Yeah. Come on. Tell us that doesn't pertain to us in this room. Yeah. That's good, huh? That reminds me of first Corinthians one, 26 through 30. Did we hand that out? Yeah, we did. First Corinthians
2: one, 26 through
0: yeah. 30. Brothers, well, think of not many of you were wise of human standards, wise human standards. Not many were influential.
2: Not many had a noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Oh yeah. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Come Jesus on. Christ.
1: Amen.
0: Man, that is us all day, every day. I would rather be that than some high elevated position or station. I would rather be the lowly underdog that God uses to outperform his station and shame the wise. Come on, it is the right of the firstborn to be in a more prominent position. But it is the glory of God to be second or third third born and outperform your station. Those of us who want to be greatest need to be ready to perform the most. You want to be greatest? You want to be very capable? Well, outper- outperform your position where you are at right now. Amen. That is how you grow in discipleship. Again, it is not those who are in certain circles or certain cliques or study the word with so-and-so or who spend the most time with this person. It is those who outperform their position that get elevated. Are you hearing me? Yeah. It is all about how you perform in your position. In fact, the only reason that these pastors are here is is to help you perform better in your position. That is why they are here. It is the glory of God to be second or third born and overperform your station. If you are not in the station you want to be, then check your performance to see whether it matches the station. That's a good word. Come on. You want to be something you're not? Well, look at what you're doing. Start what you're doing. Start with what you know you ought to be doing and see whether it matches the station you want. In fact, you Gentiles wouldn't be here unless you outperformed the station you were born in. None of the Gentiles would be included in the faith unless they outperformed the station that you were born in. That is what God has brought all of us from. We were all born aliens and foreigners and citizens to God's people. But because we are outperforming that station, we are being included into the family of God. And if Jesus told the Jews that their righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees then what would that mean for us in the room we need to outperform our station don't we yes. hey romans 11:13 says this i am talking to you gentiles inasmuch as i am the apostle to the gentiles i make much of my ministry in the hope that i may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them look gentiles we are all born at a lower station But we were chosen to make the firstborn jealous. Jews and Gentiles are born into different functions that are irrevocable. We are not called to replace them as a function. We are called to outperform our station. When we outperform our station, it causes them to wonder, hey, what kind of father do they have? It's the same as your father. (laughs) Guess what? Of course, we're talking about station, not function. Just like we can't become a pastor if we're not called to be one. Your station you outperform, not your function. We were talking about elevating our stations. How badly do we need to outperform our station tonight? Badly. Come on. You with me? Yeah, I'm with you. If we continue on in Romans 11, 17 through 19, it says, if some of the branches have been broken off and you though a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others and now sharing the nourishing sap from the olive root do not boast over those branches if you do consider this you do not support the root the root supports you that's a warning to us tonight if we don't perform what god is calling us to which is really outperforming our station we will be replaced the only way that gentiles are included in the kingdom is if you outperform your station, wow. and if you do not do that, we will be replaced. God has firstborn Israelites who will be saved and never rejected, but He will reject us if we don't outperform with them. Yeah. God will never replace His firstborn Israel, but we are called to outperform with them. You guys want to do that? Yes. We're going to move on to verse eleven. And 13. And I promise this is all going to build into something that is so beautiful. You're going to want to give everything you have for it. Amen. 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 All right. Get verse 11 and 13, Lintonius.
2: Hilkiah the 2nd, Kabbalah the 3rd, and Zechariah the 4th. The sons and relatives of Hosah were 13 in all. These divisions of the gatekeepers through their chief had duties for ministering in the temple of the Lord just as their relatives had. Lots were cast for each gate according to
0: their families, young and old alike. Man, these divisions of gatekeepers, through their chief men, had duties for ministering. Through their chief men. Man, they became what they are through the chief men. Look, you may know your mezuzah tonight. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Many of you know what your mezuzah statement is. Many of you know what your family banner is. Many of you know what your function is. Many of you have gotten wives and husbands and children. But you know what all of that came through? The chief men in this house. These chief men are the ones responsible for you knowing what you know. If you are called to be a pastor, then you grow in that function through the chief men in your life. If you are called to be a pillar in the house of God, you are called to be that through the chief men in your life. It's ridiculous to think that you, anyone would come here and become what you are called to be without chief men in your life. You know what you call that? You call that an island unto himself. And I don't know about you, but I've never seen islands doing anything good for the gospel. Have you? No. If you're called to be a, fa- a pastor, you grow in that function through chief men in your life. If you're called to a nation, you will not succeed without chief men in your life. In fact, none of you would know anything about your calling unless it would be through these chief men. We can't reiterate that enough. Now, if you are a chief man, you need chief men around you. If you're a chief man in this house, you need other chief men around you. Otherwise, you will be like that island to yourself. This is how the family of God works. None of us work alone. All of us go through a, a, a phase where we are starting out able, and then we have chief men come into our life and teach us how to be more capable. Yeah. None of us would know how to build anything for the kingdom unless we had chief men showing us where to put the hammer. Yeah. That is the gift that these men are to you. The challenge tonight is attach yourself to these men. Are there people in this room right now that you can look at your life and say, I need more chief men in my life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what? The problem is, is that they're, the problem isn't that they're not here. They've been here. And I can tell you, I know Matt and Wade have plenty of time in their schedule, right? They can always take on some more chief disciples.
3: Yes.
0: Amen. These men are here to guide you and aid you. I know many of you have questions about some serious details of your life. You know, you know who helped me answer those questions? You know how I got my mezuzah statement? I was sitting down with Matthew Pirro and I was talking to him about what I feel anointed to do the most. And he told me to write that down. That is your mezuzah statement. I didn't go off on a a retreat and pray about it for 24 hours. You want to know how I found my wife? I went to these chief men and I said, hey, I'm interested in her. What do you think? And they said, man, she is going to make a great ministry wife. (laughs) To be honest with you, I didn't go off and pray for six months about it. I trusted the chief men in my life. You want to grow? You want to be someone who's very capable? Trust the chief men in your life. I promise you they have more to include in your life than you're letting them include in your life. Now I want you to get something here. Because these men were all very capable. What does it say? Hey, and read uh, verse 13 again. You're about to get something good.
2: Lots were
0: cast for each gate, according to their families, young and old alike. So here these men progressed from being able to capable to very capable. And they're about to divvy up who goes to each gate. And how do they do that? They cast lots. I mean, don't you think that's kind of degrading just a little bit? I mean, by, by all means, I mean, they, they work their butts off to become very capable. They worked their butts off under their chief men, and now they're just going to throw some dice and decide who goes where. I want to tell you something. There's, be- there's something beautiful here. The only reason that they could cast lots is because they were all very capable. Exactly. They all knew their mezuzah. No matter well, where the lot fell, they were all able to perform their duty. It didn't matter which one went where because they were all trained to be very capable like their chief men. It doesn't matter where they went. The truth is, is when you know what you are, you are what you are, wherever you are. doesn't matter if you're in Mexico. It doesn't matter if you're in China. It doesn't matter if you're in India, Houston, Chicago, Washington, Israel, Turkey. If you know what you are, you are wherever you are. It doesn't matter where you go. Honestly, you need to learn who you are in Christ. If you learn who you are in Christ, you are allowed to be that wherever you go. And that's kind of freeing, isn't it? There's less pressure on actually where I go in a given month as long as I'm focusing on who I'm supposed to be in the Lord. When the Lord finally casts the lot for which nation you go to, it doesn't matter where because you have been trained through chief men to become very capable. You will produce what you have become. There's nobody in this room who is going to go somewhere and produce something other than what you've become. You produce what you've become, starting in your own children and then the disciples who follow after your natural children. If you focus on becoming who you're supposed to be in the Lord, you don't have to worry about where God wants you to be. He will add that to your life. So many of us are so tied up in, Lord, where am I going to go? Lord, where am I going to start a church? Lord, where are you going to send me next? I can promise to you through experience in my life, if you focus on becoming what you are called to be, he will add to you the rest. Amen. I want to give you a few examples. Which nation was Paul called to? Yes. I, I heard an answer. Gentiles? Oh, yeah, which nation of Gentiles?
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Yes. But wait a second. If Paul was called to the Gentiles... Then where did Paul start in every city he went to? Synagogues. What? He's called to the Gentiles. Why is he starting in synagogues? That's because he knew what he was born to do. He knew who he was in Christ. And it didn't matter where he started, honestly. Everywhere he went, the same thing followed because he was the same person everywhere he went. Let's flip it around a little bit. What nation was Peter called to? The Jews? The Jews? then why do we see some of the greatest revivals in Gentile history coming through Peter? Anybody remember Cornelius? Yeah, it really doesn't matter who you're called to, to be honest, honest with it. It doesn't matter if you're called to Jews in this house. It doesn't matter if you're called to Greeks in this house. It matters what you are called to be. Now, let's think of examples in this house. Elder Eric was called to Houston. Where does he minister? Pastors Wade and Matt are called to this body. And yet how many countries have they pastored in? Look, we go where the lot falls, but we are capable to minister anywhere along the way. We are capable and we are moving on to being very capable to minister wherever we are at. That's why you can take a man like J.J. Moloch, throw him into India, and he is propelling and repairing people through worship. That is why you can take a man like Nick Aragina. I've been with him in many countries. You can take him and he's always doing the same thing. Planting, appointing, and rebuilding the house of God. That is why you see that. Because these men know who they are in Christ. Tonight, get that down into your soul. Let's focus on who we are called to be. And don't wait. Don't wait until you receive some kind of revelation of where you're going. Start now. Get with these chief men. Get with them and find out what you are called to become. You must become what you are, not where you'll go, not who you will be with, not what kind of ministry partners. You must become what you are. And you must become very capable in your station. Personal testimony of mine, 2016, God called me to minister amongst Jews. 2017, I found out God called me to minister in Israel. Those are two separate things. I didn't realize that. For about two years, I was crippled in that thought because all I can think about was Israel. And before long, I realized I was not growing here because my mind was wrapped up in the clouds and where I was called to be. And I was not focusing on what I was called to become. That caused me a lot of heartache, caused me a lot lot of long nights wrestling with God. And eventually after God won the fight, you know what he's, he's, he's speaking to me? He's speaking to me all the areas that I need to grow in who I am before I ever go set foot on a foreign nation. A and now I am so comfortable in growing who I am. I don't care if I don't step foot over there in 10 years because I like the process that he's forming in me. Amen. The process that he's forming in you becoming who you are is worth it. Amen. It's worth more than gold. Your faith being refined. So then you guys get something good tonight? Yes. Man, I am preaching to myself and I am having a blast. Hope you're enjoying it. (laughs) Linton, would you read verse 14 through 19? The lot for the east gate filled to Shelemiah. Then lots were cast for his son Zechariah, a
2: wise counselor, and the lot for the north gate filled to him. The lot for the south gate filled to Obeidion, and the lot for the storehouse filled to his sons. The lots for the west gate and the Shelagin gate. Yeah. Up on the other road fell to Chippin and Hosanna. Guard was alongside of Guard. There were 60 lights a day on the east, four a day on the north, four a day on the south, and two at a time at the storehouse. As for the court to the west, there were four on the ro- at the road and two at the court itself. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers who were descendants of Korah and Barerah.
0: Man, they were guard alongside guard. They were shoulder to shoulder wherever they were. They were family alongside family. That really is the next nature of discipleship. In this house, we have many different families, but we are one house. When we are moving on to becoming very capable. Man, Psalms, I think it's Psalm 63. It says that God sets the lonely into families. That is what happens when God starts to move you from just being able and starts training you in a household. We are many different families in this house, but we are one house. I want to read to you Nehemiah 4, 11 through 13. Actually, I'm going to hand that out. Who wants to read? Uh, Timo, loud and proud. I'm going to interrupt you a lot. Come on, hands. Who wants to read? Jackie. Philippians 1, 27 through 28. I'm going to get you next, Anna, but not now. We are different families, but one house. Now, remember how I mentioned to you you're going to see some similarities between this chapter and Nehemiah? Yep. Check this out. Who's got Nehemiah 411? I do. Also, our enemy
2: said before they know it, see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived
0: near them... Hey, hold on right there. Enemies said that they're going to put an end to the work? Man, this looks like enemies without the camp, outside of the camp. Now keep reading in verse 12.
1: Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over,
2: wherever you turn, they will attack us.
0: Man, that sounds like enemies within the camp. Now look at the solution. Verse 13.
2: Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points in the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows.
0: Man, there were attacks without. There were attacks within. And so Nehemiah's solution was to station families in unity at the wall where they were needed to build the gap. There are many families, but they're building one wall. There were many families, but they were one in purpose. And because they had one purpose, the enemy saw them as one people. They were different families, but the enemy saw them as one people. The problem is, is that sometimes we see ourselves as many different peoples in this room. But the enemy looks at this church with its many families and it sees one people because we have one purpose. Just like David is about to set up the building of the temple. Nehemiah is building the temple, and he's doing it through unified families with one purpose. Who's got Philippians one twenty seven?
1: Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, "...in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, that too from God."
0: Yeah, you got it. So how did Paul know they were conducting themselves in a worthy manner? (coughs) Because they were contending as one man. Their unity. That's how he knew they were conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Hey, how do you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? By saying in unity. Yeah. We are many families, but we stand as one. We fight as one. The enemy sees us as one. This is why we need each other. Don't be tempted to look at other families in this church and see yourself as something different. You're not. Because the enemy sees you as exactly the same. And you know what? I've seen people who really have a problem with unifying themselves with the body until they get punched in the face by the devil. And then they realize they need each other. That might be God's way of allowing that to happen to show you how much you need each other. The enemy sees us as one. And when he attacks one family in the church, I trust you. Trust me. It's not just that family that's getting attacked. Usually it's many of you at the same time because the devil sees us as one family. We would do well to see ourselves as one family. Hey, let's move on to verse 20. We're going to start picking up some pace here because I don't know if that clock's right. That says we're an hour and 16 in. Oh, we got plenty of time. But well, we're going to keep this going. Let's do it. All right, brother. The
2: fellow Levites were in charge of the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for the dedicated things.
0: All right, so anybody see anything interesting here? The fellow Levites were in charge of the treasuries of the house of God and the treasuries for the dedicated things. Yep. Yep. Offshore bank account, bank account at home. Two treasuries. Now, really, why on earth is there two treasuries? Think about that. I mean, we probably have half a treasury in this church. Why are there two treasuries here? You guys want to want to get into that? All right. Read verse 21 and 22, Lenton. The descendants of Ladan, who were
2: Gershonites to Ladanas, and who were heads of families belonging to Madan, the Gershonite, were Jehili, <laughs> the sons of Jehili, Zadok, and his brother Joel. They were in charge of the treasuries of the temple of the Lord. So that's
0: the first treasury right there. Yeah. Okay. The treasury of the temple of the Lord. Earlier in verse 20, it calls it the treasury of the house of God. Yeah. That is your first treasury. Now move on, Linton, and read through uh, 27. I'm going to interrupt you in between.
2: From the Amramites, the Israelites, and the Hebronites, and the Uzielites, Shubayah, the (laughs) descendant of Gershom, son of Moses, was the officer in charge of the treasuries. His relatives through Eliezer, Rehobiah, his son, Jeshiah, his son, Joram, his son, Zikri his son, and Shlomith, his son, Shlomith, and his relatives were in charge of all the treasuries of the things dedicated by King David, by the heads of families. So
0: what? Wait. They were in charge of all the treasuries for the things dedicated by King David. That's her second treasury. Keep going.
2: By the heads of families who were the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and by the other army commanders. Some of the plunder taken in battle they dedicated for the repair of the temple of the Lord.
0: All right. So here we are seeing two treasuries that they had before the temple was built. The first treasury was dedicated to the temple of the Lord or the house of the Lord. The second treasury was everything that was dedicated by King David and his men. You guys see that? The second treasury was made up of all of the plunder that David and his men took. Now, why on earth were there two treasuries? Well, probably for the same reason that we have tithes and offerings in a body. Perhaps both are needed to actually do the work of God. You know, perhaps this is not just an alternate savings account that we all wish we had. Perhaps this is actually put there in the scripture to show how God's work is supposed to be funded and how God's work is supposed to be done in action. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You guys interested in looking at that? I'll warn you beforehand. If anybody has a problem with tithing, you're going to you're going to get a little offended at this. So if you've got a problem with tithing, take a deep breath and maybe get you a napkin or something, a Kleenex to to wipe the tears. We're going to get straight into tithes, and we're going to hit it right on the nail. Amen? Hey, I can do that because I don't see any of the money, and I don't benefit from any of the money. I'm a tither in this church. All right? So I can get up and share something that your pastors can't share. Well, they can. They absolutely can share it. But why should they have to if they have a son who's able to share it for them? Right? All right. So we see two treasuries. The first treasury is kind of like a tithe. The second treasury are from the spoils of Yahweh's war. The first treasury is like a tithe. goes for the temple. It comes from your normal daily living. Say that with me. Normal oh, daily, daily living. And it is for the normal operation of. Of the temple. That is what a tithe is for. Your tithe goes into a treasury. That is well. <laughs> goes into a treasury. That is for the normal operation. Of the temple. And it comes from normal. Daily living. Reason why we're going through this is. Sometimes a new person will come into the church. And they're like yeah I don't see the big deal about tithing. You know. I don't really feel like I should give my money to a church. I mean after all, all churches are are hypocrites and liars, aren't they? Well, doesn't matter what you think about the church. The word is very clear on tithing. Would you guys like to see how the word is very clear on it? Yes. Before we get into that, you should know that tithing is something that every man is able and woman, every man and woman is able to do, and you're required to do it. Tithing is not something that you are not able to do. There is not a way that you can say, well, I'm just not able to tithe. It is impossible to say that. And every man and woman is required to do this. So I'm going to hand out a few scriptures. And we're going to get into tithing. and We're going to see how that relates to the second treasury. So, uh, Chris, you get Leviticus 27, 30 through 31. And I promised you a scripture. You're going to get Deuteronomy 12, 4 through 6. Uh, JJ, get Numbers 18, 21. Brandon, you're going to get Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Hayes, you're going to get 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 10. Uh, Pat, get 1 Corinthians 9, 13 through 14. Bonnie, get Luke 18, 11 through 12. Excuse me. Miss Cass, if you can get Mark 12, 41 through 42. How many scriptures is that? Eight. So eight scriptures on tithing. Have you heard an eight scripture string on tithing before? No. You're going to want to write this down. All right. Who's got Leviticus 27, 30 through 32?
1: Every tenth of the land's produce, grain, from the soil, or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man decides to redeem any part of this tenth, he must add a fifth to its value every tenth animal from the herd or flock which passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He is not to expect whether it is good or bad and he is not to make a substitution for it. But if he does not
0: make a You got it, Chris. So every tithe of everything from the land belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The tithe is instituted by God early on in Israel's history and it's something he requires for all people to obey. Now, some, some had the argument, well, this is just for Old Testament believers. Well, this is just for the Jews. This is how we did that. Well, you're going to see here in a second that it is not just for the Jews, and it is not just for Old Testament believers if there is ever such a thing. The tithe is instituted by God early on, and it's something he requires for all. Say all. All. All people. It says here in this passage that it belongs to God. It doesn't belong to the person giving it. It belongs to God. It might be in their hands. It might be in their pockets. But it already belongs to God. And the only way that they can get out of that tithe. Listen to this. The only way that he allowed them to not tithe. Is to substitute it with money. And add 20% to it. That's the only way they can get out of the tithe. Look, you cannot give a tithe. You do not give tithes. It belongs to God already. It does not belong to you. If you are making income, 10% at least belongs to God already. So if you make $100, 10 is already God's in your pocket. If it's in your pocket, it doesn't really mean it belongs to you. It is God's money in your hand. If you did not pay the tithe, you had to add 20%. By the way, this is the same amount that you have to pay if you wrong a man or break a vow in Numbers 5. If you break a vow, you have to add 20% to it. Man, what is God saying here? If you break my vow of tithe, you better add 20% to it. Otherwise, I'm going to hold you accountable. Hey, what's Deuteronomy 12, verse 4 through 6?
1: choose from among all the tribes to put his name there from his dwelling. To you to that place you must go, there bring there bring the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give give, and your free will offering and the
3: firstborn of your herds and flocks.
0: What you see here is you see burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, things you've vowed to give, free will offerings. This shows you that tithes are different from all other offerings. Yeah. There are free will offerings you can give, and then there are tithes that already belong to God. It's not yours. You do not give a tithe. You are bringing something that belongs to the Lord already. You guys getting that? Yeah. So many times we think in our minds, you know. You know Man, I might be doing, (laughs) my discipleship has been bad this week, but you know what? I'm giving to the Lord 10%. Well, no, you're not. You're just actually putting in his hands what already belongs to him. It's not something special you're doing. Don't break your arm patting your back because you're tithing. You are simply bringing something that belongs to God already. The Israelites were required at the time that the place was revealed to bring their tithes there. Where is there? The temple. He's talking about the place that he would choose for his name to dwell. And he's saying you are to bring your tithes there. Now why would he say that? Because he's foreshadowing that the tithes are going to be used for something in the future. You tracking? Let's take a look at our next verse and we're going to see that. who has got numbers eighteen twenty one?
1: Serving at the tent
0: of meeting. So here God has a purpose for the tithes. Those tithes are to be given to the Levites for their service at the temple or the tent of meeting. In fact, God used this income of resources to support the men he chose to serve the people. Yeah. So tithing is not just something that you're giving to the Lord and, and you know, uh, it's something special that you had to sacrifice for. No, tithing is actually you giving to God's way of supporting you. You are actually supporting the men who are teaching you. Elder Charlie, you had your hand up. That's the only thing the Levites got. That created an inextricable link between the Levites and the people that they worked with. That the Levites were dependent on the people. That's a good point, Elder Charlie. The Levites were dependent on the people. And the people were dependent on the Levites. They had to work together in that regard. Their tithe was not something special that they were doing. Their tithe was actually better seen as an investment into their own spiritual condition. (laughs) It's not a charismatic means of making money. It's not you give 10% and God gives you 210%. Tithe was instituted to support the work at the tent of meeting or the temple. You guys got that?
3: Now look at Malachi
0: 3, and I promise you you're going to see this in a different way. You rob me, but you ask, How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food
3: in my house.
0: Man, that's serious, isn't it? Yes. God says it himself, he says, Bring your tithe, don't give your tithe, bring me what you owe me. Bring me what's mine. Look, when you do not tithe, the Levites go unsupported. When the Levites go unsupported, God's work on earth is hindered. Look, the Lord can send ravens to bring in provision, but why should he? When he already has a tenth of your possession in your pockets. It's already his. And when you do not give your tithe, you are robbing God. How are you robbing God? You're robbing God of his ability to minister through the Levites to the people. When you do not tithe, you are robbing God the ability to minister to that person over there. Because the Levites go unsupported. Yeah. Now God's big enough. He'll bring in provisions. But why should he? Right. Shouldn't you just give him what you owe him? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, his throne, his temple, his footstool. It just becomes a building if the Levites are not there working in it. If the Levites are not supported, then what good is the building that we are standing in? Wow. What good is any of this if there are not Levites ministering in it? Yeah. They need to be supported by God which really means they need to be supported by the body. Amen. Now, in case you're thinking that this is just a Jewish perspective or a Old Testament perspective, let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, 7-10. 1
3: Corinthians
0: 9, 7-10 Who serves a soldier at
1: his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the tree? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the Lord say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out in the brain. It is about oxen that God is concerned. Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the piling plows and the thresher threshes,
0: you ought to do what is in hope of sharing the harvest. Now here's Paul. And Paul is talking to who? Paul is talking to who? The Corinthians. The Gentiles. And he's teaching them the importance of tithing. And where is he getting his scriptures from? The Torah. The law. Paul is a minister to them. He is a Levite to them. Although he's not from the tribe of Levi. Although he's not from the priestly line of Aaron. He is a priest to them. And he is a Levite to them. Look what he goes on to say in verse 13 through 14. Who's got that? Those who work in the what? Temple. No, wait a second. Did Paul ever work in the temple? No. He was a Benjamite. He couldn't. So why is he using this imagery here? Because he's relating to you a concept. Tithing to those who are ministering to you is like serving those who are serving at the temple. You here are building a temple. You are being built into a temple. And these ministers that you see amongst you are the Levites working in the temple. And the same concept that applied in the Old Testament applies here right now in the same way. Keep going in verse 14.
1: In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel.
0: Man, the Lord has commanded that those that preach the gospel earn their living. Well, where did he command that? In the Tanakh. He commanded it in the Torah. Did this stop in the New Testament? No. Did this not apply to Gentiles? No. If the Corinthian church failed to tithe, then God's work hinders in the ministry of the apostles and David's tent would never transition to the temple. Who's got Luke 18:11? The problem is not that he was tithing, I promise you. The problem is that when he was tithing, he thought he was giving something. He ought to be thinking, I'm just simply doing what my duty is. His pride, he thought he was giving something back to the Lord, when in fact, it was what the Lord was owed all along. Who's got Mark 12 41 through 42? Now we all look at this verse and we say, man, exactly what Jesus says. Man, her faith is great. She only, she's only putting in a, a fraction of a penny. But you want to know what else is true about this verse? Just because this was a poor widow, just because she only had two very small copper coins, she was not excused from tithing to the temple treasury. Where is she putting her coins at? The temple treasury. Because, excuse me, she wasn't excused because she had little. She was still required to pay the 10th. This is a responsibility that falls on every one of God's people. Having much or having little, it doesn't matter. There are some who say, you know, I'll give tithes when I make more money. Yeah, no you won't. If you're not giving tithes now, you will not give tithes in, I promise you. If you're not giving what God is owed now, what do you think is going to happen when you've got more to keep for yourself? Having much or having little, this is something that's required of every person who is amongst God's people. You guys starting to get that? We should not hear of people in our body that do not tithe. It is strictly biblical, it is entirely scriptural, and it is entirely godly to support the Levites, otherwise, you are robbing God. This is everyone who is able, which is all of us. We are all able. We are all required to do this. This is the first treasury. You guys want to get into the second treasury? I promise you, this gets so good. If your first treasury is what comes out of your normal daily living, where does the second treasury come from? The second treasury comes from your supernatural battles on behalf of the Lord. It comes from the plunder that you get from engaging in supernatural warfare, and the Lord gives you victory. This relates to an offering. And every capable man is expected to do this. Now you move on from being able to capable. And when you're capable, man, you get good at killing. Man, business is killing and business is good. When you start to rack up some victories, you start to rack up some plunder. And when you rack up the plunder, that is the Lord allowing you to fund the building of God's permanent dwelling place. Every capable man is expected to do this. Come on. Do you want to be capable tonight? If you want to be capable, you better be able to give out of your victorious plunder to God's work in here. We're going to get into that. These special gifts are from the plunder you gain in special victories. I'm going to hand out a few scriptures on that. Who wants to read? Got the same hands. Cho, you take Exodus 36 Two through seven. I'm going to interrupt you. Uh, Nick Rosales, take Numbers 11. Or I'm sorry, Numbers 31, 11 through 12. Caleb, First Samuel 30, verse 26. Leslie, you get Second Samuel 12, 30. Um, let's see. Paul Mackewich, you get First Chronicles 29, 14 through 16. Uh, Chris, you get 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. I'm going to interrupt you on those. That's it. Now here the Israelites are bringing materials for the construction of the tabernacle. For some reason, you always see plunder connected with the construction of either the tabernacle or the temple. You always see that. It's like God just loves to take plunder from enemies of God, and he likes to post them all over his walls and show that as a sign of redemption for the nations. It's like God's trophy room. But the Israelites are bringing these materials for the construction, and where did they get those materials? Exodus 3 says that they plundered the Egyptians. They took the plunder that God gave them in a supernatural victory, and they dedicated that to the building of the temple or the tabernacle of the Lord. Read verse 6 through 7. Man, they brought so much that they were told to stop. Wow. Man, they were, they were kicking the enemy's butt so bad that they had so much plunder. Moses had to say, hey, stop bringing all this stuff. I got more than I need. Good. Come on, that's what God's doing in this house. Is He's giving us so much victory. We've got so much plunder. We don't know what to do with it. We're going to build something great with it, with it aren't we? Yeah. Hey, these men were not holding on to their own spoils. They didn't take these victories and say, you know what, because I was on the ground fighting, it's all mine and I'm not going to give it away. Instead, they realized that these victories were a result of God's hand on their life through discipleship, through becoming very capable. And they realized that it was God's and they gave it back to God, dedicating it to God. That is what you do with your supernatural victories. The plunder you take from super. So. If you happen to sell something for three times the price that you should have sold it at, perhaps maybe the Lord gave you that victory not for your own blessing. Perhaps God has something intended for it in this house that he wants to build with. What's Numbers 31, 11
1: through 12? They took all the plunder and spoils, including the animals, including the animals, and brought the, capt- the captain's spoils and plunder, Moses and Eliasus,
0: Man, they brought their plunder to Moses and the priest. Yeah. Hey, if you, if you went out to conquer in a certain area and you happened to get a chest of gold, how many of us would walk right up to the priest in this house and say, hey, this belongs to the Lord. I didn't do a thing to get it. And yet that's what these people did. Yeah. Yeah. Every supernatural victory they got, they dedicated plunder to the Lord. God gave them the supernatural victory, and therefore they dedicated the spoils to Him and His purpose. What's 1 Samuel 30, verse 26?
1: It's this. (laughs) When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying,
0: Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Man, I love that about David. David realized that the Lord had given him the capability to win the battle. Of course, David slayed his his tens of thousands. Of course, David was a warrior from his youth, but he realized it was God who made him very capable. From that plunder, he went to give it as a gift to the elders. The truth is is that capable men win supernatural victories. Able men need a little bit of training. Capable men start to get some victories, and very capable men are very good at winning supernatural victories through the Lord's help. Very capable men give their plunder because they know how to get more. They're not wanting to hold on to it. They don't take the plunder with a a closed hand, and they don't think to themselves, you know, this is mine. If I give it away, how will I get more? Very capable men know how to win battles, and they know how to get more plunder. You know, the proof of David's win over the enemy was the gift he gave to the elders. How did they know he won the battle? Well, the plunder that he gave them was proof. Man, come on. We need some proof of our spiritual battles in here tonight. The lack of of supernatural offerings might just be the result of a lack of supernatural victories in your life. The fact that you are not giving supernatural offerings might show that you don't have any supernatural plunder to give. If you had supernatural plunder, and you gave your plunder to dedicate it, that is the proof that you are winning those battles in secret. Second Samuel 12, verse 30, through 30, uh, just 30.
3: David took the
1: crown from the king's head, and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of
0: gold, and it was set with precious stones. David took a great crown, And what did he do with that plunder? He dedicated it for the temple. David was not only very capable himself, his men were very capable. The men that followed David were very capable because David had taught them to be very capable. Of all the plunder they received in their victories, they dedicated it to the temple of the Lord. Out of their overflow of success, they built the temple of God on earth. Out of their supernatural victories, the plunder that they took, they built the physical temple of God on earth. Come on, tell me we don't need an overflow of supernatural victories in this house. We need to be able to fund the missions that we are going on. We need to be able to fund the work that we are going out to do. We need to be able to fund the things that these pastors are called to do. Hey, how are we going to do that, church? Out of the overflow of our supernatural victories is how we're going to fund the work of God. We need some more success. We need some more overflow of supernatural victories. The proof that David was very capable was in his offerings. He was not just giving small amounts. He was giving large amounts because he was winning large battles. He was not failing in secret and winning in public. He was winning in secret and winning in public. And that gave him some supernatural success. And of course, I'm talking about the fruit. I'm talking about. The testimonies of talking about the things God gives you from victory. But I am also talking about money. I am not ashamed to say it. These men took plunder from the enemy's camp and they built the temple of God. Any of you guys been blessed with supernatural victories in this house? Man, how much should we be willing to give supernatural offerings to the temple of God? It's got First Chronicles 29, 14 17. We're going to see David's heart in this matter.
1: 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand.
0: Man, I love that. Yeah. David was allowed to give more than any man. David had more success than any man had around him. But he realized who am I and who are my people? Who are the men that I'm leading? That you should be able to give as generously as this. Of course, David knew that his hand was the one wielding the sword. Mm -hmm. But he also knew that it was the Lord that allowed him to have success in battle. It is your hands wielding the sword tonight. But it is God who gives you success. Keep reading.
1: We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God... (laughs) As for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you.
0: Man, look, the privilege to provide for God's temple is enormous. The truth is, is that God only allows some. God allows everybody in this room to take part. We are all able. But I, I can tell you for sure, there are not many churches doing what we are doing. God has allowed. He has chosen this church. To do some extraordinary things in the kingdom. He has allowed us to have some supernatural victories. Yes. Wouldn't you say? Yes. The reason is. Is because out of that overflow of your victories. He's wanting you to dedicate something to him. Amen. He's wanting to post all over the world. What your victories has earned for his temple. God gave David great capability. Through his hand on him. Did you hear what David says? Your hand on me has provided all this. You have provided all these things through your hand. Well, how has, how has the hand of God been on David through the chief men, through discipleship in his life? David realizes that his great victories and plunder were the result of God working through him. All the plunder and abundance came from God's hand to David's hand and back into God's hands. It all came. It all was from God's hand in the beginning. And then it just passed through David's hand back into God's hands. That is exactly how we ought to live. Taking in things from God's hand to our hand and with an open hand, giving it back to God. The proof that David has supernatural victories is that he gave supernatural offerings. That is how you know he had some victory. If there are no supernatural offerings in your life, if there are no supernatural sacrifices in your life, if there are no moments where you have just a tremendous war chest and you're like, man, this goes all to the Lord and for his battles, Then there's no supernatural victories in your life. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. They learned the hard way. They thought everything came from them. They thought they were having a victory in private. When in fact they were having a huge failure. And God would not take their offering from them. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. I'm going to read this to you. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful, cheerful. giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, say all things, all at all times, all having all that you need, all you need, you will abound in every good work. Look, those who, those who are more <laughs> victorious tend to give more to the work of God. I've seen that. Those who tend to have more victories end up giving more to the Lord. Those who have more victories end up sacrificing more. It's just a pattern that always repeats itself. And those that sacrifice more have more victories. Those who have supernatural success usually are pretty excited about dedicating their plunder. It's usually those who don't have much success, who do not have that many victories, that usually when they get something, they kind of hold it close to themselves, and they do not want to give it up. But those who have more victories, those that are walking in the promise of God, those are that are conquering, they know. If you're conquering more in the kingdom, you know that it is not by your strength. Right. You know that it is from the Lord alone. Yeah. And you are eager to give back to him what he's given you. The truth is, is that if you're sitting here tonight and you don't have very many victories, he is able to make you very capable of getting more victories. Ask David. He started as a shepherd. And God made him a king and the greatest warrior Israel has ever seen. God is able to make you more capable of getting victories. All you have to do is ask him for the right heart. Amen. Amen. I'm going to skip down to verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 9. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way. So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Look it's not a wrong thing to ask God to make you rich. As much as you hear people preach that oh man to be rich is bad. bad." No being rich is not bad. What you do with your riches though can determine whether you miss the kingdom of God entirely. Or you make it in with great glory and honor. What you do with your plunder. Is what determines how great you are in the kingdom. He will make you rich. Just like David and his men. He will make you rich in victory. He will make you rich in testimony. He will make you rich in your knowledge of the word. So that through your victories. You dedicate it back to his temple. So that you may build the house of God on earth. Man we have been talking about this for a couple of weeks. Haven't we? We are building something here. Guys. Look your tithes. Do not belong to you. Your tithes belong to the Lord. That is the very minimum that able men should give. If you want to be a capable man, get ready to give some supernatural offerings to the work of God. I want to tell you that some of the closest disciples, some of the strongest disciples in here I've seen make some of the most tremendous sacrifices that you would never believe. You know what makes them strong, honestly? It's the sacrifices they give. When you give a sacrifice after a battle, you are totally dependent on the Lord. I want to tell you tonight, that offering box should be ten times the size that it is. As much as as we have been given in this house, we ought to be getting supernatural victories. And getting supernatural plunder. And dedicating it. I know some of you are sitting here like, I don't know how to do that. I, I don't know how I can get more plunder. If you want to dedicate, I promise God will show you. He will show you where you can. And then most of the times the people that I'm not sure where I can dedicate more usually are overlooking the one area they can. Promise if you leave here tonight asking the Lord, where can I dedicate more to your kingdom? Where can I dedicate more to this house? He will show you. And if you have trouble hearing from the Lord on that, go to these two pastors and they will tell you where you can support the most. Amen. (laughs) All right. Let's move on to verse 28. Oh, by the way, the man that was in charge of the treasuries, you know what his name was? Shubael. It means returning captivity to the seat of God. His very name means that he's returning things that were captive back to the seat of God. And he was an officer of the treasuries. Man, that is entirely different than the U.S. treasury, isn't it? Which is a privatized institution anyway. All right, moving on to verse twenty-eight. And everything dedicated by Samuel the seer, and by Saul, son of Kish,
2: Abner, son of Ner, Joab, son of Zeruiah, and all other dedicated things were in the care of
0: Shlomith, and his, Shlomit, his brothers. Look, there's something here that's pretty special. We're not going to spend too much time on it. We're going to wrap this up soon. I want to show you the meaning of the names listed here. Now, of course, there's some oddities in this verse because when you look at it you're like everything dedicated by Samuel wait by Saul how did Saul dedicate anything we're going to get to that in a second but when I show you that there is a reason for listing these men here their names mean something Samuel means asked or heard of God Saul means asked for Kish means bow or to bow down Abner means father of light Joab is Jehovah no rather Yehovah, or Yahweh, is my father. Zeruiah means with pain or tribulation of the Lord, and Shlomit means peaceful. Look, I want to show you those names on a slide. What we're seeing here is those names listed in order and what they mean: asked or heard of God, asked for, bowing down before the Father of Light, from whom all good things come. Yehovah is my father. And with pain or tribulation of the Lord, I will walk in shalom or in a peaceful way. So how do you give plunder? How do you get supernatural victories? Well, the text gives you the answer in the names listed. How do you get supernatural victories? Well, you have to ask or you have to hear from God. You have to ask for the areas where he, he can give you victories in your life. You have to bow down to him honestly and be willing to obey. He has to be the father of light from whom all gifts come down. He has to be illuminating your path with light. He has to be your father and you have to show that by your actions. You have to show that through pain and tribulation that comes from God. You have to show your perseverance in those things. And you have to walk in peace or shalom through all of your days. And he will give you victories that result in plunder. Come on, that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Now, I want to get back to Saul because I, I, honestly, I, my mind's stuck on Saul. How did Saul give and dedicate things to the temple? Well, it's quite simple. Even men like Saul had victories, but they were not remembered because he was unfaithful. His victories were not remembered. They were not credited to him. Ezekiel 18 says, if a man who is righteous turns away from his righteousness, the Lord will not remember that righteousness anymore. But that doesn't mean he didn't gain plunder. Yeah. His victories are not remembered as being his victories. But you know where the plunder went? To the temple of the Lord. Yeah. That reminds me of Proverbs 13.22. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Oh. Yeah. Sinners may get victory in the business realm of life. It's quite entirely possible that God will store up that plunder for his kingdom. Not your personal pockets, but his kingdom. Look, if you do not continue in the walk, if you do not continue, if you do not progress from being able to capable to very capable, your valor will not be remembered, but your funds will be used. I'll say that quite plainly. If you do not plan on continuing to becoming very capable, then you probably won't last long in this church. But at least your funds will be used for the kingdom, right? Anybody want more than your funds to be used? I want all of my, everything I have to be used. Let's move on, and we're going to round out to, uh, we're going to finish the chapter. So read from 29 to verse 32. Kenaniah
2: and his sons were assigned duties away from the temple as officials and judges over Israel. From the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his relatives, 1,700 able men were responsible in Israel west of the Jordan for all of the work of the Lord and for the king's service. As for the Hebronites, Uriah was their chief according to the genealogical records of their families. In the 40th year of David's reign, a search was made in the records and capable men among the Hebronites were found at Jeddah in Gilead. Jeriah had 2,700 relatives who were able men, and heads of families. And King David put them in charge of the Reubenites, the Ganites, and the half tribe of Manasseh for every matter pertaining to God and for the affairs to the king, of the king.
0: Look, in the last year of David's reign, you see where it says the 40th year of King David's reign? He reigned for 40 years. This is the last year of David's reign. And they searched the records and they found able men. We should be moving on to being very capable. But look what these able men did. God considered these able men to be able to rule over tribes and hostile territory. I'm going to say that again. God considered able men. These weren't capable weren't very capable, they were able. He considered them strong enough to be able to rule over tribes in hostile territory. Look, it is enough to be able. If you're not capable, if you're not very capable, at least you are able. There should not be an excuse, well, I'm not capable yet, not very capable. No, you are able. And look what able men can do. They can rule over tribes in hostile territory. You may not be very capable yet, but if you are at least able and willing, you will be used by the Lord. It doesn't require you to be very capable at the start. That ought to comfort you tonight. You don't have to be very capable from the beginning. In your first year of faith, it's expected that you are just barely able to keep it going. (laughs) In the first five years of your walk, it's expected that you are just barely able to figure out what you're supposed to be doing. In your first 10 years of your walk, it's expected that you're barely able to accept a calling and learn how to function in that calling. But you are moving on to being more capable and very capable. Don't beat down on yourself just because you're only able. That's where these men started. And they were able to lead tribes at that point. Being able is the very minimum where we start. You don't start as being unable. You start as being able in the kingdom of God. The good thing is is that every year these able men did that, they would become more capable. Every year they would rule over these tribes they were becoming more and more capable as they went. And every year they spent capable, they would be becoming very capable. Amen. It is all about repetition, church. You do what God has called you to do and you do it with consistency. As you do it with consistency, God is making you more capable into very capable of what he's called you to do. That reminds me of Timothy. Timothy, in the beginning of his life, was able, he was able to travel with Paul. And I don't know about you, but that probably was a pretty difficult task, just to travel with Paul. The more and more he traveled with Paul, he became capable of pastoring And then the more he became capable of pastoring, he became very capable like Paul was. Second Timothy two, one through three reflects this. It says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul entrusted to Timothy because Timothy was a reliable man. Timothy became capable and very capable, and now Paul's entrusting him the same task of entrusting to others of becoming very capable. The truth is, is that Timothy could be sent to any church. He could be sent anywhere by Paul because that meant he was what he was anywhere he was. He learned how to be very capable in his station, and that meant Paul could send him anywhere to any church. When you become very capable, you are able to go anywhere God sends you because you have learned your station. You've learned everything about your station. You've learned the tools that are required in your station. As we progress through our discipleship, we move from men who are able to capable to very capable. This means at first winning converts, making disciples, and then advancing the kingdom in supernatural ways. Man, I remember those days when I used to try to make converts. Now, really, I just want to make disciples, and I hope that one day I can advance the entire kingdom through an entire group of disciples. This means tithing, giving offerings from battles and giving supernatural offerings from supernatural battles of the Lord. In other words, we build the ranks of God's army and we fill the war chest of our God with provision for future generations. Come on. Do you want to fill the war chest for future generations? Our supernatural battles today are filling the war chest that our kids are going to use to go into battle. Amen. Man, let's store up as much as we can get. Amen? Amen. Let's build up as much plunder as we can plunder be taken from the fierce. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Can plunder be used for our kids to take more from the fierce? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. First Corinthians four sixteen through 17. This is my last verse. Wow. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. You notice how he doesn't say, I urge you to imitate me. That's why I'm showing up to show you how to imitate me. He says, imitate me. That's why I'm sending Timothy, my son, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees with what I teach everywhere in the church. Timothy Timothy became so very capable that Paul was able to send him in his stead. That is what God is raising up in this house. Men who could be sent from this house throughout the world to remind them the way of life that LCM has taught you. Look, Paul lived a life of supernatural victories, which enabled him to give supernatural offerings. Do you know a man That gave more supernatural offerings than Paul the Apostle? Mm -hmm. That's because he had supernatural victories. He was able to start the race. And Paul finished his race very capable. Timothy imitated what he saw in Paul and became the same thing. Tonight, I invite you to look around this room. Look around the room. Everything you see here has been provided by supernatural victories. Down from the very wood planks that are on this wall, to the projector screens, to the axioms that we have on these walls. These axioms were all birthed out of supernatural victories in the Lord. Heck, even the metal that they're written on were provided with supernatural offerings from supernatural victories. The wood planks, the paint... The beautiful floor that we we chew up our gum and spit it out on. This offering that we come and worship at. The sound system that we use to worship with. Everything is provided by a supernatural victory. Everything you see has been provided for you. Now what are your supernatural victories that you must provide to build it further? Tonight, find someone who is very capable in their station and start to imitate them. Start to imitate. I'm not talking about someone in a station that wants to be in another station that seems gifted, that seems capable. I'm talking about someone who actually knows what station they're called to. Like these pastors and these elders. Imitate these men. Learn how they get their supernatural victories. Learn what kind of supernatural offerings they've had to give to provide what you enjoy right now. Without future victories from future generations... Without the future victories of your children, without the future victories of the next wave of disciples that come into this room, our work will be stopped short. (coughs) I want you to let that sink in tonight. God gives you, can you think of how many supernatural victories God has given each one of you? I know that convicts me, because I know there are many supernatural victories I've gotten, and I haven't done a gum thing with the plunder.
3: Yeah.
0: It is the plunder that feeds the work of God. Some of you are, I'm excited, because one day the treesters will be in Israel. We'll get to have you guys come visit, and we're going to win the nation of Israel together. Amen. My brothers are going to go to Turkey. And we're going to rebuild those seven churches in the book of Revelation and we're going to do it together. That does not happen if supernatural victories do not result in supernatural offerings. This is for all of us. As a body, this temple can't be built without you and what you have to offer. We all like to relegate the work to Pastor Matt and Pastor Wade because they're very capable. But the only reason that they are here is to make you very capable. Yeah. Yeah. The plunder comes from your hand. Yeah. In all honesty, it was David leading those men. But who did the bulk of the work? Oh, no. It was the mighty chief. It was the mighty men. You see, there is always a priest and a Levite tied with the military. That's because when the plunder comes in from the military, they give it right to the priests. It is always the military. It's always David's men. It is always the military commanders out there fighting. And that is what we're going to do together as a body. Amen? Amen? Let's stand up and pray. Mighty God, we thank you. Because you are opening up our eyes. Lord, you are showing us each our station in this house. Lord, we ask, we cry out, Lord. That you help us become very capable. yes, Jesus, Lord, I want to be very capable. Lord, I want to provide for your work. Lord, in all honesty, it doesn't matter if I go or not. I just want to see it built. Lord, I pray that you stir up in this house a desire to see your house built. Lord, I pray that we would throw away all of our trivial spendings. Lord, everything that we spend our resources on. That does not matter. Lord, I pray that we throw away everything. Lord, there are things of enjoyment that we need to cast down tonight. Lord, there are things that we love for our own entertainment. Mighty God, we're asking that you stir up in us a heart like David. Lord, you're providing everything from your hand and we want to give it right back into your hands. Lord, stir up the discipleship in this house. Stir up the relationships between fathers and sons. Stir up the relationships between chief men and those who are able to do the work. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this body. I thank you that you have made each one of us able to work for your kingdom, and you are making us become very capable. Lord, we give you all the thanks and the praise and the glory and honor tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, guys... I'll be honest with you. I had none of this before I showed up at 1030 today. You want to know where I got the revelation? Got it from my brothers and my fathers. I was honestly going to skip over and go all the way to chapter 29 tonight. You see, everything that comes from us doesn't really originate from us. Everything that you have to give comes from the Lord who is giving it to you. Amen? Amen. Use what he gives you.